The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language and existential despair. Saturday, the 4th of February 2017, in a strange new thing... Oh, fuck this. This is terrible, isn't it? I mean, this is... The first podcast, the first episode of this podcast for uh, one week, two, three, four, oh God, nearly three months, and look what's happened. I'm going to call this episode the 9pm end of the world probably. But before we do that, I just want to go back a little further than those three months. Do you remember this? President Trump. Go on. You might as well start practising it now, right? President Trump. Say it with me now. President Trump. Picture him in your mind as I say that. It'll help you get used to the idea. And say it with me. President Trump. Well, good evening, President Trump. Yeah, see, that works, doesn't it? Just say it. Say it and you'll get used to it, right? President Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine him at a NATO meeting. Well, President Trump, we we uh, understand that you wish to use nuclear weapons on the immigrants. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be so, so, so excellent. Now, that's from the 5th of November... 2015, not 2016, 2015, a full year before the American elections. Told you so. Look, it's not really a matter of uh, be careful what you wish for because I wasn't actually wishing for this. I was just foreseeing this new era in human history. I can indeed See through time itself, and you people really do need to start recognising this simple fact. And I seem to have been well ahead of many of the politically astute people on this little planet we call the Earth. For example, a year later, only a few days before the American election, I held the 9pm edicts public house forum number four, in Melbourne, and at the end of that discussion, we decided to pick up this question of Donald Trump. Okay, let's move on to something far more important. Donald Trump. Round the table. Yay! Look, it has to happen. We have to talk about this, right? Uh, Round the table, starting with Sally. Will he be president, yes or no? No, I hope not. No, they're not. No, they're two two different questions. No. Fiona? No. I don't know. You don't know? I think that's a fair answer. I suspect the answer is no, but I think there's a possibility. I don't think he wants it. Um, well, he'd have to actually do the job, wouldn't he? I think think his kids would want it. He's going to make a lot more money not being the president. Mm. Um, but... Oh, there's so many. There's so many things to talk about here. What do you make of the fact that some people are saying, "Well, if Trump doesn't win, I'm getting out my musket and you know, armed resurrection." <laughs> you, you've, you've. Oh, sorry, grabbing his musket, not 
Yeah. Sorry, is this a euphemism, Wade? <laughs> well... Oh, oh, more, more terrible imagery. But this is why I think Trump could still win. He does represent uh, a huge number of disaffected uh, lower classes of white men who feel that they have been disenfranchised by the system, whatever the system is. Do you think he and Pauline Hanson have been talking? Oh, gee, just talking. Rule 34. Yeah, that's right. No one can see, yeah. That's right, no one can see. (laughs) I still think that some sort of tater-tate or other parts... Uh, other parts is possible between uh, Ms Hansen and Mr Trump. Uh, The discussion you uh, heard there, by the way, uh, was between Sally White, journalist at Crikey, Fiona Patton, MLC from the Australian Sex Party, and Upali Divisekra, who's a scientist of many kinds and science communicator. So why did this happen? I I mentioned some of the possibilities in that last grab, but I think since then, the uh, many of the pundits, or as uh, some people in Australian politics would say, pundits, but they'd be idiots, have been saying that really the Dem- the Democrats, Hillary's side, just took it for granted. They went, oh, yeah, Trump's a joke. Uh, we're competent. They simply didn't, and they just sort of cruised through. They didn't actually try. Um, and yet Trump tried. I mean, nothing else. He was out there doing the rallies, hammering his message again and again and again. Oh, well, Trump is President of the United States now, and we're two weeks in. So how would this pan out? Personally, I'm worried at two levels, the trivial and the horrifying. I mean, the trivial level is that Trump seems to have zero concept of taste conventions or how his everyday decisions might be seen by others. I mean, you just have to look at his haircut to to understand that right. But the other day, just a, a couple of days before I'm recording this now, Trump went to the National Prayer Breakfast. Now, I don't know exactly how the National Prayer Breakfast fits into the grand scheme of American politics, but you would think that it's meant to be some sort of solemn or at least inspiring and reflective occasion. But no, Trump used it to boast about his television ratings. But we had tremendous success on The Apprentice. And when I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And we know how that turned out. The ratings went right down the tubes. It's been a total disaster. And Mark will never, ever bet against Trump again. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings, okay? He used the National Prayer Breakfast to pray for the follow-up panellist on The Apprentice and to essentially sledge him about the ratings. Now, Arnie Schwarzenegger really knew how to respond to this, and he had a simple message. Hey, Donald, I have a great idea. Why don't we switch jobs? You take over TV because you're such an expert in ratings, and I take over your job 
and then people can finally sleep comfortably again. Hmm? Nice line from Arnie there, isn't it? And you've got to remember, he was governor of California for uh, seven or eight years. I forget the exact amount. And I always thought he showed uh, some interesting characters in that. For example, because uh, Arnie had made so much money from his acting career, he did not accept his governor's salary. So that saved 175000 US a year. I wonder whether Trump is foregoing his presidential salary because he, in theory, has money up the wazoo. Now, I thought, okay, Does that mean Schwarzenegger has a certain uh, ethical basis? Apparently not. As I discovered by reading The Ultimate Source of Truth this evening, i.e. Wikipedia, uh, the Progressive Ethics Watchdog Group, I should have just said Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Anyway, that group had a report out in April 2010 naming Schwarzenegger as one of the 11 worst governors in the United States because of the various ethical issues throughout his term as governor. Okay, so maybe that didn't turn out so well. But certainly Trump's lack of taste can be seen Well, just look at the Trump Tower, his golden palace. Uh, You've probably seen the photographs of this, right? Everything is sort of gilded. He has his youngest son riding on a stuffed lion. Now, all right, I personally wouldn't have minded growing up uh, riding on a stuffed lion in a gilded palace, but then would I have enjoyed it, really? I mean, you see other photographs of this kid and his eyes just say, please, someone get me out of here. I also saw a tweet by uh, someone of Iranian background. I think he was Iranian-American saying, look, I'm Persian and even I think that's over the top. Trump, of course, has continued his excellent uh, decorative tastes. Uh, In the White House, for example, first day in the Oval Room, gold curtains. Hey, what is this about Trump? He clearly has to prove it to himself, if not others, that yes, he's the rich man. I mean, a truly rich man doesn't have to prove anything. He's comfortable in his wealth. He's comfortable in his uh, place in society. I remember back when I was, uh, gee, this is uh, really years ago, when I was uh, a producer with what's now called Radio Adelaide in Adelaide, was uh, called Radio 5UV then at the University of Adelaide. And we were doing a, a recording of a jazz concert at uh, Benithan House on North Terrace in Adelaide. It's basically a lovely little mansion. And as we were recording it, uh, people were asking me, who's this old guy standing in the corner? He's just kind of wearing an old shirt and and pants, whatever. He's looking a bit unkempt. What's he doing here? And I said, well, that's Kim Benython. You know how this is called Benython House? Well, that's Kim Benython. He owns it. Uh, He was also a Spitfire pilot in World War II uh, and his family is one of the grand and most richest families of Adelaide. In fact, back in the Great Depression, when Parliament House was being built on North Terrace in Adelaide, the state Parliament House, the state ran out of money. So the Benithan family just gave 
the state the money to finish off the building. Also, the University of Adelaide, which is also on North Terrace, there was a proposal to extend a street called uh, Throne Street through from the city, through and across the river into the northern parts of Adelaide. But that road would have then cut straight through the University of Adelaide, dividing it in half. And, and they obviously didn't want that. So the Benithan family donated money to create this huge Gothic building called Benithan Hall and put it firmly in the path of this proposed road. It was a whole, fuck you, if you want to cut this road through the university, you will have to come back to us and demolish the building that one of the richest families in the state just donated to the university. The building's weird because it's only really used for graduation ceremonies and so on. It can kind of be used for concerts, uh, but it isn't all that much. One of the things I love about it is the floor slopes down a bit because the Benithan family at that stage didn't like the immorality of dancing, so they built the building with a sloped floor so it couldn't be used as a dance floor. Lovely stuff. <sighs> Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, he's, he really is a wannabe. He, he needs to prove himself, and, and perhaps that's right. I mean, how the fuck does a casino go bankrupt? I mean, right, the, the whole concept of a casino is that the mechanism is designed so the house never loses. And then there are all those stories of Trump simply not paying suppliers and contractors uh, because you know, it wasn't good enough, he says, so he just doesn't pay them. I mean, these are not the actions of an honourable man. But these are, are really still little things, aren't they? Once he's moved into the White House, we're seeing a whole range of, uh, well, again, it's pettiness. Uh, Karen Dalton Beninato on Twitter mentioned, uh, she just quoted the words uh, that came out of the White House when Trump had had that, uh, uh, shall we say, robust conversation with the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, it was said on then on uh, CNN, quote, well, it was at the end of a long day and he was tired and fatigue was setting in. A guy uh, with the handle Third Beard on Twitter said, this is verbatim the words you'd use to describe a toddler. And it's true, isn't it? They're just tired and frustrated at the end of the day, so they spat the dummy. Of course, Trump himself isn't the only person who spits the dummy here. What about his uh, press uh, spokesperson, Sean Spicer? He comes out on day one and, and sort of spits the dummy in the press briefing room, doesn't take questions, just sort of alleges and claims, yes, there were 1.5 million people at the inauguration. Like, we, we saw the photos, mate. There wasn't. And then a couple of days later, after he's ridiculed for this straight-up lie, he then says, oh, the first official press briefing of the Trump administration will be you know, tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hey, wait, mate. You are the press briefing officer standing up in the White House press briefing room and now you're saying it's not a press briefing? Yeah, nice work. Quality integrity there, mate. Uh, dear. We're going to see a lot more of that. But as I say, 
these are all minor things. Here's another one. Um, there is so much negativity about Trump within the White House staff itself that some of them have gone rogue. There's a Twitter account called Rogue POTUS Staff. Now, I'm pretty damn sure this isn't a uh, a uh, parody account because they're really saying stuff. And uh, when the, the word came out that, that Trump had said, he wants all the men to wear ties in the White House and all the women to, quote, dress like women, which in his case presumably means, well, just watch some videos from not Miss Universe, from, from Miss USA, live from Texas. It's a great quote, pageant, unquote. Rogue POTUS staff tweeted, we can confirm that POTUS is encouraging people to buy his brands in order to have the right look to work for his administration. It's just so convoluted. Someone's going to have to do a diagram of this whole thing. Now, I mentioned too that there was that fight between uh, Trump and Turnbull. (laughs) This is what I find amazing is that that turned out bad and then Sean Spicer comes out. He can't even say Turnbull properly. He, we, we think he said Trumbull or maybe Trumbull. He couldn't get the name right. Sydney Tom on Twitter suggested, I like to think White House staff insert typos, like deliberately in, in POTUS's scripts or Sean Spicer's scripts, and then piss themselves laughing when it comes out wrong. Now, some of you will have heard me talk about this next subject before, but it certainly bears repeating, especially now. Back when uh, the Australian government started seriously discussing internet censorship, that was uh, in about 2007 from memory, Uh, and since then as governments of both the major parties in Australia started introducing uh, surveillance legislation, uh, uh, more powers for police and intelligence agencies, uh, metadata retention, that is telecommunications data retention and so on, it was all pushed as being for national security, or in the case of uh, internet censorship, about saving the the children. Well, I always thought that national security can be anything you want it to be, right? Back in the Cold War, national security meant, fuck, those bastards might drop an H-bomb on us any minute, and fuck it, we're gone, Right? Whereas now, national security is someone with three ounces of fucking explosives in a saucepan. That actually counts as a weapon of mass destruction under American law. Anything with as much or more explosive power than a hand grenade is, under American uh, anti-terrorism laws, a weapon of mass destruction. See, it used to be measured in megatons and now it's measured in ounces. That's where we're at. And at the same time those things are being redefined, we've seen things like the ability to uh, put people in a cell and question them without a charge being laid or to do that in secret has extended, I don't know, from 24 hours to 48 hours to, in Australia now it's two weeks. You can't tell anyone about it. Well, back in 2000, 
whatever it was, uh, when Senator Stephen Conroy was the Minister for Communications, and obviously a lot of this stuff uh, fell under his portfolio, we had what you should say a robust discussion about these issues. It's quite fun, actually. He gives as good as he gets, let me tell you. That was, that was great, and he always plays the ball and not the man. Well, he said I was paranoid. He said Australia has a robust standard of democratic institutions. We have traditions that we couldn't just suddenly have a dictator take power and and turn it all into a police state. And he said I was being paranoid. Well, I said, pointing to some of the legislation, where does it actually say that these provisions can only be used for certain types of things? Or if it does say that, where does it say in the bits of the legislation that then control regulations, where does it say that the Attorney General or the Minister for Communications can't just walk in and change this at any time they like? Well, we had to leave it there because we were running out of time, we were at loggerheads, and I I kind of understand his point of view you know, that it couldn't happen here because we're not the kind of place that does that sort of things. But are we taking it for granted? Now, 10 years ago, and again, some of you may have heard this story, back in 2007, Clive James wrote a book called Cultural Amnesia. And at the time, as I say, 10 years ago, I started reading that and uh, my initial impressions I put into a blog post with the title, Stay Alert, Ye Nameless Toiling Animals. You can look up that title, you'll find it very easily. And I'm going to read you kind of fragments of it now. Hindsight is wonderful, I said. When we look back at, say, World War II, at television documentaries that cover the rise of Hitler in in that documentary, well, that phase of history just lasts a few minutes, right? It's easy to forget that Hitler became head of the National Socialist Party, that is the Nazi Party, from 1921. That's 12 years before he became Chancellor. That was in 1933. And it was another six years after that that World War II kicked off, well, at least officially, with the invasion of Poland. Now, I've often wondered what that all looked like for people living it in real time. Now, my guess is that for the vast majority of people, the rise of Hitler had very little impact on their day-to-day life, just as now, uh, and as I wrote this in 2007, the distant wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have virtually no discernible impact on my life here in Australia. And the many minor, in in scare quotes, changes to our laws uh, that increase the powers of central government without any balancing increases in our own ability to hold that government accountable, well, see, they don't have much impact on me day to day either. And yet I see, you know, random Muslims being rounded up and, and I never quite know what happens to them. We don't follow those stories in quite as much detail as I deserve. Well, back in the summer of 1932, I guess few politically aware people sitting in sunny cafes in Berlin or Hamburg or or wherever might have discussed that odd Mr Hitler's failed run for the presidency. But 
I doubt that anyone would have seen that as heralding global war. Hindsight allows us to join the dots in ways which just aren't possible in real time. Now, Clive James's book came out being called Cultural Amnesia. I think that's an important title. But he originally wanted to call it The Reef After the Storm. Not as saleable a title, but I, I think it works because, as he explains, civilization and culture are an accumulation of all these minor achievements that down the track you can't identify each of those achievements individually or uh, or um you know attribute them to a certain person to quote clive james a lot of small toiling animals do their thing and then die this is a coral reef he's talking about then another layer of small toiling animals forms along the top of them they do their thing and then they die too. And this vast construction is based on death, on wastage. But that doesn't mean the dead creatures' lives were meaningless. On the contrary, without them, there'd be nothing. Now, Clive James says that one of the greatest achievements of our civilization is liberal democracy, the kind of governments that we call Western governments today. But he says it's never as secure as we might imagine. If I can quote some more of him, there is a danger inherent in liberal democracy, which is a very successful political system, that its citizens will, generation by generation, forget that its construction was achieved against great opposition. It was no means-a-done deal that liberal democracy would emerge victorious at the end of the 20th century. Hitler had other plans, and so had Stalin. Clive James says cultural amnesia teaches us the things we need to know so we remain alert to any threat to intellectual freedom. Now, as various politicians have said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Uh, Though, yeah, it takes so much effort to stay vigilant when we're constantly reminded that the important decisions in our lives are which mobile find to buy and whether on Tuesday night it'll be NCIS or CSI. Oh, that dates it a bit. Actually, I've got an NCIS cap, an official one, given to me by an NCIS officer. I guess it's probably the same ones as they have on TV. Still, it sounded good at the time. I've been listening to a lot of history podcasts lately. I've been getting far more value out of history podcasts than the news, generally, uh, because of what Bernard Keane, who's the uh, politics editor at Crikey, calls the perpetual present of news. I sometimes call that the uh, the hallucinating goldfish effect that uh, our news and our politics pretty much is based around two factors, hallucinating goldfish. The hallucination is that we really go away from the facts and start reacting to the kind of ideas and memes in the media. The classic example of that is that There's a crime wave and we need to respond. Well, it isn't a crime wave. In most Western nations, there's less crime. It's far safer than at any time in the past. But politicians roll out crime wave. They have this kind of paranoid, schizophrenic delusion that the world is terrible. So that's uh, the the, uh, hallucinating part of hallucinating goldfish. The goldfish part is we just seem to not notice that we've been here before. 
That's what I call hallucinating goldfish. It's what Bernard Keane calls the perpetual present. Anyway, that's been a core part of how I view the news lately. Um, And I've been getting frustrated too by how few mainstream journalists seem to know much about the world, about history, about science. You see that in bad science reporting. You see that, uh, say, for example, in reporting of a conflict zone and they see an armoured personnel carrier and call it a tank. Just think, if you know that's wrong about that specialist subject area, whether we're talling, calling um, it military tactics or it's medicine or whatever, just remember those same general journalists are getting everything else just as wrong. Anyway, I usually only skim the daily news headlines these days, mostly from Twitter, because if something big is happening, I'll know from Twitter. The journalists will be tweeting it. The punters will be tweeting it. I'll know that something's up. And if there's something that has real-time implications or it'll give me a quick burst of understanding, look, I'll pull up a a live video stream or audio feed or whatever. I mean, if it's an important press conference, I might watch it live. If it's uh, an unfolding police or natural disaster or something in my area, sure, I'll follow that live. And if it's related to my work, I'll dig into it. I mean, really is just a mercenary return on investment decision. I mean, if I want to know about this stuff, I have to do it and I'll get paid for it. But, you know, I'm curious too about a number of issues. But really, if I need or want to know something else uh, in more depth, it's then that I drill down to it and find out about it in more depth. But even then, I think my strategy is to read longer, slower slower cycle stuff. I mean, weekly news, not daily, for example. Current affairs, not news, really. And in general, I go for specialist or in-country news mastheads rather than the local Australian mainstream outlets, at least if I want any kind of depth. I mean, why read some general journalist's take on a military issue when the military news mastheads and military blogs cover it not only with depth but with actual knowledge? I mean, why read analysis of what's happening in Washington from some night shift horse race caller in London or Sydney rather than experienced DC reporters? Now, the argument against that is usually that I want to hear about the implications for Australia. Well, again, why listen to a general journalist? Why don't I listen to people from, say, the Lowy Institute for International uh, Policy or whatever, not some stenographer of politicians' daily squawks? So in general, and before I bore you much more with this little rant, I reckon there's three, yeah, three broad rules to follow. One, Prefer specialist or credible close-to-the-action news outlets rather than goldfish-brained news bleaters a continent away. Two, prefer prefer, prefer longer-form, slow-cycle journalism and current affairs, what's sometimes called slow news, to rolling news unless it's relevant to your interests. And I guess 2A there, do you really need to follow the misery of someone a world away in real time? I mean, sometimes yes. Sometimes you have friends or relatives in the zone of where the bombing happened or where the earthquake happened or whatever. But unless you do or unless you work in some way that's connected with that location or that industry or whatever it might be, it's just tragedy porn and you are being a vulture. 
feeding on other people's misery. Stop it. And three, spend a proportion of your time on history as well as current affairs. You'll notice long-term connections and you'll start to understand the why of what's happening around you. And I go, oh, yeah, look, I'll chuck in a fourth one. Having fun and enjoying trash news is just fine. I mean, celebrities, pictures of a goat in a tree, the biggest pumpkin in Albania. Look, it's all good. The world is not all serious stuff. But the overall point is to remember to consume news, as we have to say these uh, these days. These days? That's a Freudian slip. Remember to consume news to benefit yourself what you need to know about, what you want to know about, what you enjoy knowing about, not the agendas of the news outlets and their sponsors. Above all, have fun. An example of this fast news stuff is that news spread pretty fast that Donald Trump was ending travel to the United States for anyone who didn't have a visa. That is, the whole electronic visa-free application system would go. Well, that wasn't the case uh, at all. And Mark DiStefano at uh, BuzzFeed checked that out and found, no, 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 there's there's two issues here. One is the electronic visa uh, exemption for people from certain countries and in certain visa categories, such as tourism, such as routine business travel. No, that's not going anywhere, at least not yet. What was being dropped was the idea of getting a visa without coming in for an interview. And I encountered this recently. I'm currently in the process of uh, renewing my American visa. It expired a short time ago. And as I went through the form online, which is, I don't know whether you'd call it extreme vetting, but let's say it's detailed. Once I got through all that, it asked me a series of questions. Oh, are you an Australian citizen? Yes. Did your last visa expire less than 48 months ago? Yes. Have any of your details like name and stuff changed? No. Are you applying for the same kind of visa as last time? Yes. Oh, well, you just want to mail in your application. I mean, that's that was the process that is being cut out. Big deal. I expect to have my visa renewed without too many problems. That's happening actually in a couple of days on Monday. I know the world has changed, so I'll report on that as we go. But that's the sort of thing where people rush in without knowledge of the visa system and suddenly bleat a whole lot of news which is at its core wrong so history podcasts, I'm really enjoy, really enjoying uh, some of the podcasts coming out of the History Hit Network. Look it up. That began around Dan Snow's History Hit, who's uh, an English uh, historian and television and radio presenter of history programs. One of the things, the network's expanding out. I'm really enjoying a podcast called Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, and Dr. Sam Willis and uh, James Daybell, who are actually real historians, get together and talk about, like, kind of mind map their way through the history surrounding a certain concept, like windows or zebras or zombies. Um, it's really fun. They, they clearly love their stuff. Look it up. It's called Histories of the Unexpected. 
But a couple of weeks back, uh, I listened to a wonderful episode of Dan Snow's History Hit itself, where he spent some time talking with Lawrence Reese. Now, Lawrence Reese really has been the creator behind the great surge in recent years of history, radio, television, and podcast. Uh, podcasts, plural. And he, in particular, has spent the last 25 years researching the Holocaust. You may have heard of that. It happened in World War II. He's been interviewing survivors and perpetrators. And he's got a new book out. You can look that up yourself, Lawrence Reese, R-E-E-S, and you'll find that book. I haven't read the book, but I did listen to the uh, um, fascinating interview that Lawrence Reese did with Dan Snow on History Hits recently. And here really is a fraction of it. It's about four minutes worth. He wasn't interested in going into politics prior to the First World War. He, he, he wanted to be an artist. He wasn't that anti-Semitic necessarily. Uh, this is uh, Adolf Hitler they're talking about. I forgot to mention that. He wasn't interested in going into politics prior to the First World War. He, he, he wanted to be an artist. He wasn't that anti-Semitic necessarily, certainly not as passionate anti-Semite he became prior to um, uh, the First World War. In fact, people thought he was just a bit peculiar. Um, you know, he would rant on about opera more than politics, as far as one can see. Um, what happened was the circumstances of the end of the First World War, the rise of communism, the, the false linkage between communism and Judaism. So people then said, we're frightened of communists taking over and the Jews are behind it. Um, a whole range of things happened uh, in the circumstances of the end of the, of the First World War. And then and the crucial things to think about in terms of what could happen, where and when. You know, in 1928, Hitler had been leader of the Nazi party for seven years. And yet the Nazi party in the 1928 German general election polled just 2.6% of the vote. There were police reports at the time that dismissed the Nazis as a joke party. They're on the fringe. Let's not waste our time with these people. And yet, four years later, they're the biggest political party in, in Germany and the following year Hitler's chancellor. So the big, big warning from that, it seems to me, is you must not write off fringe parties because once a crisis happens, an economic crisis happened, then people start looking for unconventional politicians. I remember this, this German, I tried to, you know, intelligent guys, why, why in the 1930s did you, did you go to a man who had no previous political office, who had no experience of politics and was saying these extraordinary radical things? Uh, he, he said, you can't imagine a more um, unqualified politician. And he said, well, look where the qualified politicians have got us. Well, Lawrence uh, Reese has got a point. And sorry, I said that was about four minutes. I'm thinking of a, a grab that comes up later in the podcast. That was only about two minutes. But does any of that sound familiar? Recently, Trump revoked... Visas, as you know, for people who had come from or had citizenship in seven certain countries. That turns out to be about 100,000 people. One of the ironies is that the seven countries he named, none of them have produced people who've caused a terrorist casualty in the United States. They all come from other countries 
But it turns out that those countries are countries in which Donald Trump has business interests. Meanwhile, while that's happening, uh, Trump has quietly removed the KKK from its terror watch list. And even that's something to be worried about because if you talk to the FBI, for example, who know about this shit, they actually list right-wing supremacist groups as the real terror threat within the United States. I'll be joining more of these uh, dots in a moment, but for now, here's something to cheer you up. Susan Hennessy, she used to be an intelligence community attorney, uh, and she now runs the blog Lawfare, which also has a podcast. It's worth following her stuff. Now, she has said, or others have said about her over recent days, that until now, if the White House or the CIA or the NSA or something proposed a certain action, they said, how about we do this? And one of the intelligence community attorneys said, no, that's illegal. That was the end of it. Well, yeah, we all know that in some circumstances that wasn't actually the case. But yeah, broadly speaking, that's how it went down. Well, the early, earlier today, Susan Hennessy tweeted that she was hearing plenty of people saying, however bad it looks from the outside, the reality is much worse. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. The Trumpiverse <laughs> is a fascinating place. As I said, there are people within, within inside the White House itself. If you're wondering why I'm stumbling here, it's because I'm hearing my voice in my earbuds just a fraction of a second after I speak it uh, because of delays in the audio system here, and it just throws me. Okay, some of the, the stuff that's happened here. You'd think it's crazy, but it's getting worse. Uh, I saw a piece from the Washington Post earlier today, someone saying, these are the sorts of quotes that a journalist fantasises about. And this is a bit I'm going to read. Asked whether federal workers are dissenting in ways that go beyond previous party changes in the White House, that is, you know, you'd kind of expect that when the White House changes from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat, there might be a bit of a you know, kind of a go slow or or some sort of friction. Tom Malinowski, uh, Tom Malinowski, who was President Barack Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, he said, "Is it unusual? There's nothing unusual about the entire national security bureaucracy of the United States feeling like their Commander in Chief is a threat to U.S. national security. That happens all the time. It's totally usual. Nothing to worry about." Gee, this is cheery stuff, isn't it? Well, as we sit here on Saturday the 4th of February, Trump has just gone on holidays. Yep, two weeks into his presidency, it's time for a holiday. He's sorting out a few things. It'll all happen at places that benefit his businesses. Uh, I mean, of course it does. So what's happened so far? I would like to refer, to, refer you to a website called What the Fuck 
justhappentoday.com. <laughs> yes. What the fuck? Justhappentoday.com, which is following uh, the activities of the uh, the Trump administration. Now, I'm going to run through this from day one to day 14. It'll probably take a while. I'll probably skip some bits, but I, I am just doing this for the first time as you are listening to me do it. So day one. Donald Trump, which is, you know, straight after the inauguration. Donald Trump has named only 29 of the 660 executive department appointments he has to make. Who else is coming in? That's when he did his record-setting turnout to the inauguration claim, which wasn't. That's when he deleted all references to climate change from the White House website. The only thing there then was America First Energy Plan, in which he vows to destroy Obama's climate action plan. Uh, He showed, well, he didn't show, someone else showed a new poll that Obamacare is more popular than Donald Trump. Wouldn't be hard. Maybe Americans are slowly realising that having like a health system that works means they don't die as much. And of course, there was no record that Trump had resigned from any of his companies or transferred ownership out to a blind trust while his president. Day two, which uh, what the fuck just happened today dot com refers to as the war on media. There are photos coming out comparing his inauguration crowd to the women's march. Obviously, there was a lot of fuzz about that. Press Secretary Sean Spicer attacks the media for accurately reporting those crowds. This is the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration period. He said, which is no. Uh, Trump unleashed an attack on the news media, uh, causing journalists of inventing the rift between him and the intel agencies, and, of course, for understating the size of inauguration crowd. Uh, Trump says he has a running war with the media, the dishonest media who gets facts wrong. He did that in a speech at the CIA, which spent a total of eight words Uh, giving tribute to the CIA officers who'd lost their lives in service to their country, even though he's standing in front of the memorial wall, which I find quite beautiful. It's just a a rose of stars, anonymous stars for every CIA officer who's died in the line of duty. Obviously, their names aren't attached. This surely is one of the most sacred spots within CIA headquarters – Trump glosses over it in eight words. What a cunt. More more stuff about facts and uh, the crowd. Day three saw the invention of alternative facts. The Women's March crowd was part of that. Uh, That's when Kellyanne Conway, Conway, I keep getting confused, Kellyanne Conway uh, said... Quote, don't be so overly dramatic about it. Chuck, what you're saying, it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point, yes, alternative facts. We know what alternative facts are. Uh, And Trump's aides... Trump's aides start to get troubled about that first weekend. And WikiLeaks calls out Trump for refusing to release his tax returns, uh, essentially saying, if he won't, we will. Gosh, how WikiLeaks turns. They turn, you know. 
Day four, the upside down. Spicer says the negative Trump coverage is demoralising, uh, that there have been no well, well, others notice that there's no White House leaks like this until now. We'll come back to that point. And without any evidence, Trump tells lawmakers that 3 million to 5 million illegal ballots cost him the popular vote. There's other things here, uh, but uh, Trump does pay a fence-mending visit to the CIA saying that uh, he's now with them a 1,000%. Oh, no, 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 the best bit about day four... Trump issues a proclamation, like a real official proclamation, proclamation, that his inauguration, I'm going to come in again, Trump names his inauguration day a national day of patriotic devotion. Now, this isn't a joke. He actually issued an official White House declaration um, to that point. Day five. Command and control, Trump believes millions uh, voted illegally, but still no proof. He orders the construction of the Mexican border wall. Uh, He orders federal workers to stop talking to Congress and the press. He freezes grants and contracts by the US Environmental Protection Agency. It just goes on and on and on. That's when a national park uh, was required to delete its tweets about climate change and presumably that's the day when all of the rogue national park Twitter accounts were set up. Um, and, And he just shows further insecurity. So that's day five. Day six, what do we got here? Oh, Christ. Oh, yeah, Donald Trump is building his wall to stop Mexican border crossings. The news comes out same day, undocumented people crossing the borders into the United States is at a 40-year low. Like, there is no problem to address. Day seven, Steve Bannon. (laughs) Look him up yourself. He's a lovely bit of work. He's a Nazi. He's Trump's senior advisor. He says the media should keep its mouth shut. Yeah, all right. Fake news starts rising. The State Department's senior management team resigns, although if you kind of look at that, maybe not. It's perhaps over overhyped. Trump orders the National Park Service, which runs like the parks in Washington, including including the Mall and the Washington Monument, he orders the Park Service to find proof for his claims about the inauguration cloud, uh, crowd. But, like, it isn't. Uh, meanwhile, the estimated cost of the wall on, Me- uh, the wall on Mexico, the war on Mexico, the war on walls, $12 billion the cost started at, $15 billion. No, look, clearly it's going to be a lot more when you look at that. Um... My God, as I said, this is the first time I've looked at this list. This is astounding. All refuge, this is day eight. All refugee admissions banned for 120 days. The extreme vetting plan will include establishing a religious test. And indeed, uh, since then, I've heard stories of people being asked for their religion at US border control. The stupidity of all this 
is that there's about half a million US legal US residents, either dual citizens or permanent residents, who have just happened to have been out of the United States and are now returning home and can't come in. Uh, it's determined for the first time that this immigration ban is illegal um, and chaos starts at the airport. I think I might have to skip through some of this because it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Day 10, which uh, what the fuck just happened today.com calls embarrassment, is Trump's first defeat. A US district court judge says in a hastily crafted order, it says here that his whole immigration ban and, and visa ban, obviously, is hate. Well, it's partially blocked, right? I mean, that, that unfolds more after. Uh, over the next few days. God, this is mind-boggling, fucked-up stuff. Day 11, dissent. It turns out that this Steve Bannon guy, well, he's now on the National Security Council, and so he's at the same level as the National Security Advisor, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff are now only going to turn up to National Security Council meetings uh, when when their presence is required. So we now have political advisers, including someone who really is a straight-up Nazi, um, you know, former one of the key people behind Breitbart, the, the far-right-wing quote news unquote site, is now in the National Security Council. He's also making sure there is no White House paper trail. He's making sure all this happens in spoken word. Uh, Let's have a look through this. (laughs) Oh, God, day 12. It goes on and on and on, but in a section at the bottom it says, news of, of lesser importance. Fox News' Sean Hannity says the media doesn't understand Donald Trump. I think, Sean, that we understand Donald Trump only all too well. I can't possibly go through all this. I really can't go through all this because it goes on and on for pages. And this is only the first two weeks of the Trump administration. So go over to, what's this website called? Whatthefuckjusthappentoday.com and all will be explained. The other day I suggested that the inbreeding of the Trump administration is like a bad episode of Rake, the Australian uh, comedy slash political drama, but with nastier characters, less cocaine and no Richard Roxburgh. I actually then got pushback to say less cocaine, maybe more cocaine. Okay, I'm not sure about that bit. On the subject of cocaine... There was a story the other day that uh, one of the people at Vice magazine has been arrested uh, because he was trying to persuade some of the music writers to be drug mules. I thought 
gee, what a great business that would be. You're taking music writers, giving them huge quantities of illegal drugs and then setting them loose on the world. Yeah, that'll that'll work. (laughs) In the last episode of this uh, podcast, I was a bit injured back, as I say, about three months ago or thereabouts. I'd uh, I'd had an incident involving a coffee table in my ribs. Uh, this episode, I'm, I'm still kind of injured a bit. Uh, I'm been in a bit of pain recently. It's okay today, uh, but you know I'm getting on a bit. And my back's a bit dodgy and you know, stuff. So uh, there is that. So that's part of the explanation. If you've been hanging out for an explanation as to why this podcast has uh, uh, taken so long. Uh, to emerge uh, from the tube that is my production timeline. But I should say that that's great, but this podcast, of course, does uh, rely on you, the listeners, uh, and your subscriptions and one-off contributions uh, to happen. Obviously, there's no advertising here. I mean, what corporation in their right mind would advertise on this podcast? It'd be so on-brand for them. And because I'm not vastly salaried uh, in my other activities, this is all up to you. This is down to you people. Well, since the last episode, there has been some support from a certain person on Australia's southern island. You know who you are. This person sends stuff in directly to my bank account and it always just has as the description, cunt which is kind of sweet, really. But if you would like to uh, contribute to the ongoing health and safety of this podcast, just go to stillgarian.com slash tip, chuck in your credit card details or your PayPal details and shove some money through. That would be great. I do intend, and I know I've been saying this for so long, I do intend to get new subscription stuff happening in this new year. It's just something that's been on the back burner for a while. If you go to... The Skank Media website at skank.com.au slash subscribe. I think the SSL certificate still works, but go to there and you can lob in a subscription thing. Uh, If you get an SSL fail message, let me know. I'll fix that up. But in the meantime, go to stilgarian.com slash tip. Uh, My movements over the next few months In theory, if I get my visa on Monday the 6th of February, then on Sunday the 12th of February, I'm off to San Francisco for the RSA conference, one of the biggest information security conferences on the planet. They're paying for that, uh, at least travel and accommodation, but um, some extra stuff to do some extra bits and pieces might be fun. I'm thinking, given that I'm lobbing down in the America, and uh, that's going to be an interesting kind of experience. Um, Spreaker that I'm doing this live uh, streaming through has a way of setting up, of doing quick stuff, suddenly going live from your smartphone. And I'm thinking of doing some really rapid short form podcasts that just sort of crop up. So I'll tell you more about that if it happens, but it's the kind of thing where you'll suddenly see a tweet going going live now and there might be a quick three-minute report. They'll all be recorded, of course, and you can catch up with them later, but that kind of might be fun. Uh, then at the end of February, yeah, this one is actually okay. I'm going to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam for a dual conference by Apricot and AP Nick. Now, AP Nick 
is the kind of organisation that runs, uh, like coordinates or at least sets rules for the technical aspects of the internet in the Asia-Pacific region. APRICOT, which I think is a great uh, acronym, is the Asia-Pacific Regional Internet Conference on Operational Technology. Now, uh, Information technology, IT, I'm sure you're familiar with that. OT, operational technology, are the kind of industrial control networks that run power grids, railway systems, uh, the elevators and air conditioning systems in smart hotels, all of that stuff. We, We now start calling some of that the Internet of Things, but really it's about critical infrastructure. Well, this is the Asia Pacific Regional Conference looking at that. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I have an interview lined up with Tim O'Reilly, who geeks will know as the founder of O'Reilly Books and all of the kind of manuals they read were created by him. He's doing some other things since, but I have a confirmed interview with Tim O'Reilly and some other stuff as well. So that's coming up uh, end of uh, February, beginning of March. And then middle of March, the Australian Cyber Security Centre Conference is in Canberra. Uh, as a kind of government organisation, they can't really start throwing out money to journalists. It's kind of a not a good look, uh, but uh, I might therefore kind of hit you up for some money to get uh, to that uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But that's the kind of outline the next few weeks, uh, and I'm also up in the mountains for some weeks. Uh, in between that, I'll figure it all out, look at the Twitter stream for updates on that. But right now, what you need to do, and I can't stress this more highly, go to stilgarian.com slash tip, open up your credit card, open up your PayPal account, and uh, we will sort things out from there. And now for the first time in 2017, well, in fact, this whole podcast is for the first time in 2017, and who knows, maybe it'll be the last one, depending on how my American visa runs out or what they think when I lob down in San Francisco. Here's Nicholas Fryer with a look through the arch window. Fuck. (sighs) Fuck, fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck. You're planning your week? No. I'm supposed to be writing a thing for Still's podcast. A 2016 in review sort of thing. Make it funny. That a problem? Did you live through 2016? Hmm. Mm, There must be some material there. Yeah, the year Western democracy shat in its own mouth and then wrote a food blog about it. Hilarious. Some people died? You like death? Yeah, some really important people died. Went completely unnoticed as far as I could tell. I'm sorry? I'm there to echo... Harper Lee, Ellie Wiesel, Marvin Minsky, Hilary Putnam, Vera Rubin, Pierre Boulez, Peter Maxwell Davis, Neville Mariner, all of them dead. Barely a murmur on the twatosphere. What? Ever heard of a bloke called Prince? Well, sometimes. Or David Bowie? Was he the astronaut? Canadian bloke. Ferret under his nose. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, some pop stars pop their clogs. Most of them over 60. It came as a terrible shock to everybody except actuaries and people capable of thought. I suppose that was a sign of progress. It was the first global circle jerk of self-pity not led by the baby boomers. So, yeah, the deaths were encouraging. 
but the internet whileathon that followed each one was grotesque. You sound conflicted. Like a racist panda. Well, what about doing a look ahead to 2017? Well, that's easy. 2017 is 2016, only with extra added suck. Let's see. The inexorable bell curve of death will claim several more people who were famous during my childhood. The Australian government will continue to resemble the sort of family Christmas which is the reason most of us hate Christmas and families. Several more of them will be revealed to have diddled on their expenses, or to put it more accurately, defrauded the Commonwealth, which should attract custodial sentences, but will in fact be punished by making them sit on the naughty step for a couple of months. The investigative media, which these days is basically four corners, will reveal an instance of the Australian government torturing powerless people. Nobody will give a shit. The Murdoch press will immediately portray the victims as criminals and terrorists. Some of the worst bile will be written by women, because being a victim-blaming culture warrior is like any job, I guess. Women have got to goose-step twice as high as men to get noticed. And then there's the things that'll make this year very, very special indeed. Britain's great Euro tanty's going to come home to roost, and Christ... Donald Trump is President of the United States. We'll be lucky to survive. Whenever I think about it, I just end up hugging my pillow and keening. Oh, is that what that's about? What did you think it was? Well, you know, we all have needs. You should write a dialogue. Oh, Christ, not this again. You've been insufferable these holidays, sitting around bitching about everything and making shit jokes. Write it down. Can't we just have sex instead? Find a creative outlet and stop dropping sake wisecracks or I'll mace you. That's deodorant. Do you want nice-smelling eyeballs? I can't write dialogue. I've got no experience at it. I don't know what I'm doing. It doesn't stop you wanting sex. Oh. Look, just write down the stuff, like the conversations that we always have, where I provide helpful suggestions about doing something for your own benefit and providing a positive role model for your children, and you whine about it like a pissy little bitch. This is one of those power things, isn't it? Just because last night I told you not to go off on one of those passive-aggressive, nobody-loves-me-weird-outs where you channel your mother, and it was right. This is your revenge. No, I had my revenge last night by telling you not to have another bowl of ice cream. While eating chocolate, which I chose to overlook because you're too young to die and I'm too pretty for prison. Anyway, writing some sort of sketch based on the two of us will only cause more angst. Why is that? Well, you might not like how you're portrayed. And it'll be all my fault if you hate it, because as writer and director and lead actor, you're not going to have far to look for someone to blame, are you? Well, presumably I'll be able to portray myself how I want. Well, not necessarily. You might not get the part. Just do as you're told. Then can we have sex? No. What if I shave first? And shower. I'll use your towel. What? Shower. Yeah, no problem. Boutros, Boutros, fucking Garley. Janet Reno. Antonin Scalia, Anita Bruckner, Dario Foe, Peter Schaffer, Johan Cruyff. Yeah, fuck you, 2016. Looking back on you with nostalgia, it's going to suck balls. You can find... uh more of Nicholas Fryer's work, including all of the back catalogue of The Arch Window at uh, nickfryer.net.
net. Also worth hunting down, and God, I ought to charge people for these plugs. John Birmingham, the columnist, writer of trashy techno thrillers uh, and other things. Uh, I'll be nice, he's a friend of mine. He has a wonderful new subscription-only thing, column, twice weekly, called Alien Side Boob. It's basically the kind of column he'd like to write for Fairfax Media, except that they have lawyers. Uh, It is, or shitposting as a service, as I saw someone uh, describe it the other day. It will cost you a teeny bit of money, but it's great fun. Uh, Google it on Bing. Is Bing Bing still a thing? I have no idea. I suppose it is. I mean, once these things are set up, they tend to tie it kind of chug along, don't they? Anyway, alien side boob. Do it. It'll be money well spent. Well, at least I reckon so. And, you know, John Birmingham knows where I live. (coughs) Elephant time! Elephant time. Each episode of this podcast brackets, at least when I remember to do it, in brackets, I issue elephant stamps of approval for people who have been exceptional in the category of thinking. And I've actually got three this time, which kind of makes up for the uh, the terrible lack of them over recent months. Uh, the first one kind of goes jointly to several organisations. The National Rugby League in Australia, Telstra, our uh, our biggest uh, telco in Australia and Foxtel, our biggest pay TV network, for their work on the uh, NRL uh, mobile pass deal to see all of the matches streamed live online. Because it turns out that the NRL pass you buy through Telstra will only work on your mobile phone a tablet or a laptop computer, but not a desktop computer, as uh, Andrew Trin uh, on Twitter found out earlier this evening. If you want to watch it on a desktop computer, nah, can't do it, because apparently a desktop computer is too much like a television, and if you want to watch it on that kind of larger screen, you need to get access through Foxtel, the pay TV network. So let's just think this through. One, whether you can watch the NRL games, the the rugby league games that you have paid to watch, whether you're allowed to do that depends on the shape of your computer. Telstra... The Telco is actually one of the major sponsors of the National Rugby League. So as part of the deal they've set up, they are deliberately making your experience of watching the game worse because you can't watch it on the biggest screen in your house. If you want to do that, you have to go over to Foxtel and pay them as well. The, the stupidity in this, I mean, the real stupidity in this, is Foxtel 
is 50% owned by Telstra. So you'd think that they could have some sort of coherent agreement with the National Rugby League about how this works. Now, personally, I'm not really into the sports ball stuff, so I couldn't give a fuck. But as a matter of principle, as a, as a matter of standing up for the people who do enjoy the game, and let's face it, the Australian National Rugby League is, you know, it's not bad. I've watched the occasional finals match. Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's one of the you know, great sporting contests of the world, I suppose. Like, I'm the wrong person to ask. But... There's sort of fans at one end who want to watch the game and there's a league at the other end who's performing the game and, you know, want to make money out of it because, let's be real, these commercial sporting leagues are not about serving the fans. They're about making money for the people involved. They are a business. But you'd kind of think that they want the the fans to have the best experience possible. But no, all of these parties, the National Rugby League, Telstra and Foxtel, have set up a regime where it matters which device you use and therefore which sort of pipe comes to you about whether you can watch the game or not. Welcome to the fucking future. So, elephant stamp of approval jointly to Australia's National Rugby League, Telstra and Foxtel. My second elephant stamp of approval goes to the developers of Chrome, the web browser. I know that many of you are listening to this podcast through Chrome. Many of you will use the Chrome browser uh, on the internet. If memory serves, it's the most popular one out there. Well, here's the latest, one of the latest announcements from the Chrome developers. The ability to interact with Bluetooth devices has been possible only for native apps. With Chrome 56, your web app can communicate with nearby Bluetooth low-energy devices in a secure and private manner using the Web Bluetooth API. The Web Bluetooth API uses the GAP protocol, which enables your app to connect to devices such as light bulbs, toys, heart rate monitors, LED displays, and more with just a few lines of JavaScript. Blink! Love the little kind of plinky noise at the end. Let's run through that one more time. They are creating a pathway so that JavaScript served from websites can talk to your Bluetooth devices, such as your light bulb, sure, but maybe your heart rate monitor. What could possibly go wrong? Elephant stamp of approval to the developers of the Chrome web browser. And my third elephant stamp this episode goes to the American Department of Homeland Security and their fusion centres, their intelligent fusion centres, of which they have more than 70. So these, an intelligence fusion centre is where 
Uh, information comes in, and given that there's more than 70 of them, obviously these are scattered across the United States. This is where intelligence comes from the Department of Homeland Security and obviously therefore the intelligence community and federal law enforcement such as the FBI into a place where uh, local police departments can go into it, emergency services and so on, and then turn that into useful information that these local authorities can use. Now, there's nothing wrong with intelligent uh, intelligence fusion centres in and of themselves. They're, they're actually really good at breaking down the silos uh, that keep information within different agencies. And that's exactly the sort of thing, for example, which caused uh, the 9-11 attacks uh, in the US to not be predicted because each agency kept its information to itself. And in the inquiries after that tragic event, uh, it was found that, yeah, all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle were known. It's just that there was no way to put them all together. Okay, so intelligence fusion centres are a reasonable thing. It's just that a billion dollars, that's billion with a B, it's like bunt with a B, has been spent on these 70-plus fusion centres out to the local area, and some of it is absolutely insane. Once uh, I get to putting these details up on the podcast website, I'll link through to an article that explains some of this. But as just part of it, the people behind this suggested that... Well, here's an example. Colorado's fusion centre for example, sent out a public service announcement asking the public to report things like photography, note-taking, drawing and collecting money for charity as warning signs of terrorism. Now, something similar happened in Australia down at Circular Quay in Sydney, which is the bay with... uh, the Sydney Harbour Bridge on one side, the Sydney Opera House on another, and the Circular Quay Ferry Terminal uh, in the middle of this this bay. It's it's the iconic spot in Sydney, right? And someone once noticed a guy taking photographs of all the ferries, and he was reported, and the appropriate agencies came down to have a word. It turns out he was a fan of ferries, like he's a ferry transport geek and he was visiting Sydney so he was taking photographs of the ferries for his collection. But of course he was from a country where people often have brown skin so he was a man of brown coloured skin taking photographs of ferries therefore he was a terrorist. This kind of idiocy has kind of gone through these intelligence fusion centres and come out the other way. Here's another example. 2003, a terrorist advisory urged local lawmen to be on the alert for uh, potential suicide bombers who might have, these are great, a pale face from recent shaving of a beard. They may appear to be in a trance or their eyes may may appear to be focused and vigilant like anyone with post-traumatic stress disorder is or anyone who's nervous or their clothing is out of sync with the weather 
or their clothing is loose. This is great. Loose clothing is a sign that they might be a suicide bomber. It's also a sign that they might be, I don't know, a hip-hop fan. They might be being black in a public place. Or they might be, oh, oh, I love this one. No, I won't go through that thought. This one's great. Federal experts advise local agencies of another telltale terrorist warning sign, someone for whom, quote, waiting in a grocery store line becomes intolerable. I'm pretty sure that you listening to this and me and pretty much everyone you know is therefore a potential terrorist. One of the other things coming in there, and and this is what triggered me to check this article out, and again, oh, shit, again, there will eventually be a... um, Uh, a link on the website in a couple of days after this is being recorded, is that one of the other signs is someone who avoids eye contact, which kind of includes anyone who might be an introvert, anyone who might be suffering anxiety disorder. This stuff runs rife through half-assed, we-must-protect-you-from-the-terrorists bureaucracies. And it's based on nothing but idiots just randomly thinking up stuff. One of my favourite ones was that anyone, this one's from the UK, anyone who looks impatient and is pacing around at like an underground station, a tube station in London, maybe they're a terrorist. I don't know. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they're frustrated. Maybe they're anxious. Maybe they're running late and are frustrated that the fucking train isn't coming. Or maybe nothing at all. But let's just check this shit out, you idiots. So my third elephant stamp of approval for excellence in the category of thinking goes to the United States Department of Homeland Security and their friend... Oh, God, my visa renewal and visit to the US is so fucked. One of the things about the medication I'm taking... Yes, yes, I do have medication and apparently it's working. So, by Christ, can you imagine? Anyway, one of the side effects of of my particular medication regime is that I have particularly vivid dreams and I remember them. Apparently, the whole mechanism... Like, the whole point of dreams is sorting out stuff in your head, right? And then once you wake up, you forget them. I mean, we all have that experience, right? You think, wow, that was an amazing dream. And three minutes later, sorry, what was my dream? Well, that mechanism gets turned off for me. So I end up not only having just ridiculously complex, if not lucid dreams, but also I remember them. And there's this whole blur after I wake up. It takes me about... 15, 20 minutes to sort out in my head, sorry, what was in the dream, what's real, whatever. It's it's kind of inconvenient under certain circumstances, as you can perhaps imagine. But just recently, I had um, a really complicated dream about my mother giving birth in the White House, uh, where I was working, apparently. So this gets complicated because, A, like I don't work in the White House, as you 
may understand, and B, my mother is unlikely to be giving birth because A, she's way older than me, and B, she's dead. Well, anyway, she was giving birth in the White House and for some reason immediately after that, I was discussing with White House staff the joy of having a really good shit. You know, the straining and the grimacing and then the sudden release as the last thick part of the stool finally cleared the last sphincter. Oh, pure joy. And we discussed that at great length and, I must say, with considerable anatomical and psychological detail. And then we told the teenagers who'd just been hanging out in our office, I, I don't know, this is a dream, right? We told those teenagers, like, fuck off, because, you know, this is the fucking White House. I said, look, we've got actual work to do, like, you know, running the entire free fucking world and these teenagers then kind of mooched off. Oh, yeah, all right. Seriously, I so need better dreams. Maybe... You know those dream catcher things? Are they kind of like the lint filter in a clothes dryer that eventually, like, these dream catchers catch all of these loose shit dreams and you kind of got to wipe them out and give it a rinse every now and then? Anyway, back to Trump. What does the Trump administration mean for Australia? I, I need to ask this because I'm in Australia, most of the people listening to this podcast are in Australia, and the Australian media... Um, needs uh, to obviously have an Australian angle on all this. Well, one of the more interesting uh, discussions of this I heard the other day after the the whole stoush, to use an Australian term, between uh, uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Trumbull um, was uh, was by James Curran, who's one of the people at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. You heard me mention them, mentioning them before. Their, their stuff's uh, really good to read. And this was on ABC News 24 in Australia just the other day. Here's uh, some of James Curran's comments on uh, what's been happening. Well, these are explosive revelations. You have to go back a long time in the history of the Alliance to see an American administration and a president using this kind of language about an Australian government uh, and and its transactions with the Australian government. I think it gives, um, I think it explodes the myth that Australia can simply rely on uh, sentiment and values to sustain the Alliance in the Trump era. And I think if the reporting is accurate and the White House is demanding some kind of quid pro quo, whether that take the form of a a battalion of Australian troops to Iraq or a freedom of navigation patrols through the South China Sea, then I don't think it's in our national interest to be trading security issues for this kind of deal. And I would be very wary of the Turnbull government uh, entering into that kind of arrangement. Yeah, um, John Barron was speaking a little earlier and saying, you know, um, President Trump, he does transactions, he's a businessman. If he gives this deal more weight and he accepts those 1,200 refugees, then there will be some sweetener that he'll be expecting on the other side. He will look at all these kinds of deals. He'll want something in return. And, mm. and the question is, we don't know whether or not the Australian government has indicated that it would be prepared to break with long-standing policy and, for example, do a freedom of navigation patrol. But I would suggest that's not in Australia's national interest. But certainly this is yet another indication 
inauguration, uh, only 10 or so days after his inauguration, that we're dealing with an era of volatility, with impulsiveness, uh, and that we simply can't expect President uh, Trump to honour the deal of the previous administration. Uh, James, you spoke earlier about the alliance. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric on the weekend from the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, also the Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, was kind of in that old frame of, of how one talks diplomatically, at least right. publicly, to an ally. Does Malcolm Turnbull, and is he going to have to rethink how he speaks in public about Donald Trump? I think both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister will need to do some careful readjustment of the language. Uh, some of their language, it's almost as if nothing has changed in yeah. America. This is a very different kind of president leading a very different kind of country to which these Australian leaders are used to. And the language that calls upon the shared history of sacrifice and common values, I mean, we don't always share the same values as the United States. Um, that will have to be rethought and I think there's going to have to be a, a, a careful sort of recalibration, bringing in the language of greater self-reliance both within and sometimes without the alliance. We are not always going to agree with President Trump and sometimes there's going to have to be some more frank language used. The language of shared history and common sacrifice I think will cut no ice with the Trump administration. So what can we rely on then? You mentioned that relying on that alliance is no longer there. If you're going to have to rely on anything, is that going to be something new? Well, look, I think the alliance will survive it. I mean, there was some very, very frosty uh, language used back in the period of Gough Whitlam and Richard Nixon. They had complete contempt in Washington for the Australian government of that time. But the Australian government then found a way in which to express its disagreement with America and, in fact, gained a healthier respect in Washington for doing so. So the alliance will survive. Um, it, it's got too many kind of solid anchors for it to be completely uprooted by a, by a crisis like this. It will pass. But I do think there has been uh, a lack of serious thinking uh, at the highest levels of the government as to how to deal with this new uncertain and volatile administration. James, what do you make of the different messages coming out of the White House and the State Department there in the briefing room? Uh, mixed messages, you could say, and also a sense, of course, that there's leaks coming out of the White House as well, these phone calls that are meant to be private information being leaked to the media. What does that say to you? Well, it says to me this is an administration still very much with its L plates on. Uh, they're rookies. They're settling into the process of governing. Uh, they're understaffed at the White House. Not all the top positions are being filled. There's clearly a, a great deal of dissent uh, in the State Department at the direction that the Trump administration is playing. And uh, now Washington is a place that normally does leak quite profusely mm. and we will probably see it leaking even more like a sieve, I think, in, in the days and weeks to come. That's James Curran from the Lowy Institute of International Policy. Uh, speaking there on ABC News 24, uh, two quick points. One, the Lowy Institute's blog called The Strategist. Look at it, read it, follow it. These people are a non-partisan uh, think tank, I suppose. I hate using that word, but think tank about international policy. They're very highly regarded internationally and uh, you can learn stuff. Secondly... Oh, yes, ABC News 24. I suppose I really ought to talk to them about copyright issues, but under certain sections of the Australian Copyright Act, I claim that this podcast is news or commentary on the news and therefore uh, this is all fair dealing as long as I credit it and I do credit it 
and the ABC still talks to me, so I suppose uh, that's all right. Various uh, points come out of that last uh, that that last piece. One is that the leaks from the White House. Uh, James said there, Curran said there, that the White House is leaking like a sieve. I mean, it's really more like a lawn sprinkler at the moment. It's only going to get worse. Seriously, the Trump administration has more leaks than the Cronulla Sharks locker room. Chris uh, Solitzer at uh, Washington Post, he does a podcast and blog called The Fix. He says the leaks coming out of the White House right now are totally bananas. Uh, and I think if you've seen uh, the vision out of the uh, Cronulla Sharks locker room, then Totally Bananas probably uh, does fit that description. Uh, Curran also talked about Australia maybe being drawn into these freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation uh, patrols through the South China Sea, or as I, as I prefer to call it, uh, and therefore ignore Chinese college, uh, colleagues, the West Philippine Sea or the, the kind of northeast Vietnam Sea or something like that. I oh, don't ever say that on Twitter just after some major political decision. You will be descended upon by armies of... Of, of Chinese propaganda trolls. It's quite fun. So, yeah, stop referring to it as the South China Sea. It's the West Philippine Sea. You'll, you'll enjoy uh, the effect. Um, the, the thing Curran was suggesting there is that the United States might ask the Royal Australian Navy to just start cruising ships through there as well, which the, the US Navy is already doing, just drive through these contested areas. I think sail through contested areas is a bit more naval, but these things don't have sails, but what the fuck. Um, and just sort of announce to the world on their, their radios that this is uh, a freedom of navigation uh, mission by the US Navy or the Royal Australian Navy, so on. It's worth noting that the Royal Australian Air Force is already doing freedom of navigation flights uh, with Royal Australian Air Force AP-3C Orion aircraft. That was something that was revealed by the BBC uh, last year sometime. It's pretty much inevitable, I think, that uh, uh, that we will be drawn into that. It's great fun. There's a whole reason why Australia is going to have 12 new submarines and not the six that we currently have. Ah, this world is going to be so much fun. And I think to finish on, the, the glorious news that Mark Pesci, the futurist and technologist, notes that Soylent Green... Uh, from the movie of the same name and from the novel Stand on Zanzibar is set just five years from now. Happy days! Well, that's all the edict for now. Check the website for more information, at least from Sunday night. If you want to support this podcast, go to stulgarian.com slash tip. The next episode of the 9pm edict will be when... When I feel like it. Until then, I'm Stulgarian. Protect your precious bodily fluids. This episode of the 9pm Edict is dedicated to the memory of the victims of the Bowling Green Massacre and their families. It has been a Skank Media production. Sorry.